This week's Hunt and Land podcast is brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Take a minute to listen to this special message. Turkey season is here. It's time to listen for those gobblers. Remember to game check your harvest. Your game check data will help manage one of Alabama's favorite game birds. Hunt safe and enjoy the season. Remember to do your part. Game check. Brought to you by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. For more information, visit our website at OutdoorAlabama.com. This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters, with how-tos for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. Well, Clint, turkey season is not going as expected for me. Somehow, I found myself chasing bluegills last weekend, which is not what you're supposed to be doing during turkey season. But I was very successful and had an absolute blast. I, every time I go bluegill fishing, I just... I'm always surprised at how big of a thrill I get out of catching those little half pound <laughs> bluegills, but we had a lot of fun. I know you did a little turkey hunting yourself. How'd it, how'd it go for you? It was a very quiet weekend. Had lots of signs, but there was not many of them talking and it was just quiet all around from what I hear. I've heard the same thing from folks from different parts of Florida, different parts of Alabama, all over the Southeast. Really, it sounds like pockets of folks are, are hearing good goblin but for the most part goblins down and it's not necessarily a turkey population thing i mean a lot lot of folks are having population problems but i know quite a few people that have a lot of turkeys and they're still seeing a lot of turkeys they're just not hearing the birds talking but you know here we are first week of april things like that can change real quick one of the one of the things that becomes important with turkeys just like quail and just like deer is is habitat but more importantly, food and cover. And that's what we're going to be talking about today on the show. We're going to really be focusing in on spring food plots, spring food plots for deer and for turkeys, and getting a little better idea of the what, when, why, and how of spring food plots and what we need to do. What are your plans for the spring? You guys got any, um, any big planting plans? Right now we're focused on, you know, trying to get our burning done while the weather's cooperating, but I'm hoping to, uh, learn a lot today and and make some plans after that. Well, let's get right into it. Today, we're talking to Daniel Bumgarner with Wildlife Management Solutions. And Daniel's company tests and blends all different types of seeds, specifically for wildlife and food plots. And they have learned what combinations work best, what seeds work best, uh, for what types of soils, for what regions of the country. And there's really just a wealth of information when it comes to food plots. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about Wildlife Management Solutions and everything you guys do over there. We basically provide products for wildlife management with an emphasis on seed and seed blends. Uh, We do a lot of other things outside of seed, but seed's kind of our our bread and butter. So, you know, spring's ramping up. We distribute to stores, other dealers, feed stores around Alabama and Mississippi, uh, North Florida and Louisiana. And like I say, we put together blends, but we also offer, you know, individual uh, seed products um, that may range from, you know, chupas to sun hemp to glyphosate tolerant beans to cow peas, you know, as well as some site specific type blended products. That's the major focus of our business. Well, Daniel, I got a, I've got a confession to make and 
I'm a little bit ashamed of this, but I'm just going to put it out there. And that's, I've probably planted 10 times as many fall food plots as I have spring food plots. And <laughs> I've always just, I don't know. It's like I get done turkey hunting and I'm a little, I'm a little bit burned out at that point. Cause you've been hunting for, you know, six or eight months at that point. And I'm ready to go fishing. It's getting hot. And I just kind of, I tune it out for a while. And, and then I get back into it come the fall and, you know, I plant my fall food plots. But what I want to know is how big is spring food plot planting? Are, are you guys, is it a big part of your business? And do you feel like guys are missing out? Oh, there's no doubt guys are missing out. And it goes back to kind of what you said, Joe. Um, a lot of guys, you know, when hunting season's in, all they can think about are getting their plots in to go deer hunting. But they forget about growing those deer. The spring season probably only makes up about 25% of what we do in the fall. And, you know, we're kind of looking at it the wrong way. We should be growing our deer in the spring and summer. We would get much, much more benefit if we bumped up those our spring food plot program. I think that education may have a lot to do with it. Guys just don't realize what kind of a huge impact planting in the spring and summer can do for your deer herd. Um, but especially for your hunting opportunities the next fall. You know, we have planted a couple of farms and had tremendous success with our summer plots, and we'll have huge observation numbers for the fall. You know, on the other side of the coin, we may have a, a, a really tough summer where we had a really bad drought, and those food plots were not as good in the summertime, and we directly saw those results that fall where our observation numbers were way down during hunting season. Well, and I mean, springtime too, you know, I know all this stuff from just reading it and, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, springtime too, that's, that's really when your, your deer are putting on spring and summers when they're putting on their antler and it's when the does are, are nursing their fawns. So it seems logical to me that that's really the time you need to be focused on giving them the highest quality nutrition as opposed to the fall when you really, I mean, for me personally in the fall, I'm just trying to kill them. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, and I think guys forget too, that we're in the Southern states. We're, we're Gulf coast states. We really don't have a bad stress period in the fall and winter, or, or especially in the winter. Our stress period is late summer and early fall. That's when our deer struggle the most. You know, our summers are so long that you know, typically, you know, we're having our spring green up right now. Uh, you know, the woods are great. There's plenty for the deer to eat. Um, but, you know, once we get into the months of July and August, a lot of that new green growth, those plants just aren't as palatable for the woods as they were, you know, in those earlier months in the spring. So, you know, it rolls back to if you've got a great, say you've got a great stand of, of some sort of you know, cowpea variety uh, mix or, or some good soybeans planted, you know, just a good leafy uh, summer legume. They're producing a lot of high quality tonnage from July and August, even into September, sometimes October. So, you know, it can really make or break the inches you're putting on those deer or, or you know, even your, your phone recruitment. You know, is that doe able to raise, raise one phone or two phones? And there's, there's a lot that affects that. Well, when you talk about those observation numbers, what do you attribute that to? Do you attribute that to those deer just being on the property year round? Or why do you think it, it went up when you had better spring and summer crops? 
Well, I know this for a fact. Whenever we plant, and, and I, I'm a big proponent in this, um, a lot of guys will just pick a couple big fields to plant, and that's all they'll do in the summertime. I truly believe that you need to plant the fields that you hunt. We see our observations go way up on those fields, if, and you kind of think about it like this. If I have a very good, uh, high-quality summer feed in my favorite deer field that I know that I'm going to hunt in the fall, and those deer are feeding in that field all summer long. Those bachelor groups of bucks are there. The does and the little ones are there. And then you roll that field right into a fall food plot come October or November. Those deer don't miss a beat. They're comfortable. They've been feeding there. They've been there all summer. And I think there's a sense of comfort with that too, above and beyond just the nutrition all the way through the year. But I, I really think that, that that helps a lot with your observations. What about timing? So, you know, here we are, first week of April. A lot of guys are still turkey hunting. When do, when do you really need to get seed in the ground? And secondly, what kind of conditions do we need to be looking for? You know, in the fall, everybody's got their weekend. You know, there were a couple of weekends they like to plant. And it's kind of changes depending on where they are, what latitude they're on, and when the rain's coming, that kind of thing. What do you think about the spring? Are there any rules of thumb? Sure. What we look for is soil temperature. Uh, soil temperature, well, you know, we're, we're trying to plant summer legumes. And most of these summer legumes, most of the time, we're going to need a soil temperature of around 70 degrees is ideal. And that's typically going to happen for us the end of April through the month of May. Maybe, maybe a little earlier further south, maybe just a little later further north. But a good rule of thumb, once we start seeing those weeks where we're catching 80-degree weeks and the nights are in the 60s, normally that soil temperature is getting there. And the reason we do that is if you think about it, you can plant while your soil temperatures are a little cooler and the seeds will survive, but they're not going to grow near as aggressively. If the soil temperatures are warmer when you plant, those seeds, those plants are going to be very vigorous and they're going to grow quicker. And that's very important just because of overgrazing early. So, you know, if you've got a crop you've planted that's just not, uh, that's struggling to be vigorous or struggling to grow, you know, it's going to be more apt to be overgrazed than a, than a plot that's going to explode out of the ground and grow strong. I don't like planting really late in July or even late June, um, typically because, you know, it's drier those months, but our spring green up has been here and gone. So the deer are typically going to be harder on those young plots if the, the later that we plant them, and you're going to have a harder time getting good tonnage. What about moisture? How how keyed in are you on getting those seeds in, you know, right before rain, or do you really care in the spring when you've got a little bit more moisture in the ground already? Yeah, I think you said it right there. In the spring of the year, it's normally not as important as it is in the fall. You know, especially if you're planting the end of April, we're normally still in a pretty good pattern, um, even through the month of May. You know, it seems like when June rolls around, things can dry off pretty quick. But normally, 15th of April through the month of May, most years, we're going to have enough rain to do really well. All right. Now, springtime is usually the time when a lot of guys try to make their amendments. So if they've got, you know, a low a, a pH that they're trying to get right, something they're trying to add back into the soil, a lot of guys try to do that in the spring. How does that affect planting? Can you do that at the same time, or do you really need to put some space in between? You know, anytime you're amending soil, I say you do it when you have a chance to do it. Um, if that happens to fall on the weekend you're planting, um, no problem. If you're going to lime that weekend, 
just make sure you work it in. Test those fields after you lime and go ahead and plant. You're not going to hurt anything. Same way, say, if you need a lot of phosphorus, um, if you have a phosphorus deficiency, you know, I would make that application and, and work it in and go ahead and plant. You're not going to hurt that planting. You're better off getting it in as early as you can. All right, Daniel. Well, let's talk about the types of plants. You mentioned a, a fast-growing plant, you know, something that's going to come out and respond well to browsing pressure. What kind of plants are going to be better for the spring and summer as opposed to fall? And also, what kind of perennial plants should we be thinking about? Let's talk about the, the faster-growing uh, plants first. I, I would definitely point most guys towards a summer legume. You know, your summer legumes are going to encompass um, things like soybeans, uh, cowpeas. And, you know, the cowpea family is a very, very large family. Um, that includes things like iron and clay peas, mung beans, uh, red rippers, hay peas, cat jang peas. There's just, there's, there's lots of cowpeas. You know, other things like ashinomine, or you'll hear it called American joint vetch. Uh, that is another legume that, that is very tolerant to grazing pressure. Those type summer legumes are typically very responsive to our hot summers. As long as we have moisture, you're going to get pretty good growth. The growth rates are really good. You know, one of our favorites is our pea patch mix, and it's a mix of cowpeas and soybeans and those kind of things. But typically, if you can get it in the ground and the soil temperatures are warm, within about 60 days, you should have complete canopy closure, you know, and it should be up knee to uh, thigh high. We want explosive growth right out of the ground. As far as perennials, most folks, when you talk about perennials, they're thinking about clovers. And, and yeah, I mean, clovers are great. There's no doubt about it. Your Ladina clovers and your white clovers are awesome perennials. But it's, it's really not something that we would want to try to establish in the spring for our climate and for our area. You know, if you're going to establish those perennials, it typically needs to be done in the fall of the year. Chicory is another one that I would throw in there as a it's is overlooked as far as a really good perennial for us in the south. Chicory does not have to have the moisture that clover has to have. If it is an exposed field, if you've got a, a red clay ridge and a cutover, you're not going to keep perennial clover on it very long. Once it goes through the first July and August, it's probably going to get burned up. Mm. Whereas chicory has a really deep taproot. And it can handle a lot more of those, a lot more droughtier type conditions. And it carries a very high protein. And the deer eat it really, really well. I know that we plant probably as much chicory as we do perennial clover in our perennial plots. But even with chicory, I would, I would still recommend to try to establish those in the fall of the year. When you plant them in the fall, they're going to produce a good root through the wintertime. And they're going to be ahead of the weeds whenever they really flush out in the spring. Mm. When you plant in the spring, you have trouble with the temperatures getting too hot too soon and weed and grass competition. It's hard for us to establish them in the, in the spring. If you've got a variety of soil types, like on our place, we've got uh, sandy loam in one area, almost mm -hmm. pure red clay, like you mentioned, in another area, and then prairie on another part of the track. Is there a, you know, kind of a bulletproof option for for guys like me who, who uh are just looking for that one go-to are you talking about spring and summer are you talking about the fall yeah spring and summer. yeah spring and summer yeah for those type areas cowpeas are probably the most hardy um they can handle any of those sites no doubt about it they're really tough you know less than fertile sites the phs do not have to be great typically as long as you're above five five cowpeas will do really well 
your fertility, if you plant those fields in the fall of the year, and you, if you're fertilizing adequately in the spring of the year, 30 units of P and K will typically grow cowpeas out. So um, it's hard to beat a good mix of cowpeas. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be continuing to talk about spring food plots. Hey guys, we get a lot of landowners that want to know, how much is my land really worth? We've recorded a video series to explain exactly how we determine that. Just head over to landhunting.com go to get the series. I'm confident it will help you achieve your land goals. And we're back. Today we are talking with Daniel Bumgarner with Wildlife Management Solutions and focusing in on the what, when, why, and how of spring food plots. Let me ask you about those peas, Daniel. Now, this is going to be something that is, maybe you'll tell me it's an old wives' tale, but I, I mean, I've seen it a little bit firsthand, but you always hear about browsing pressure being a big problem with cow peas. And you were talking about planting the patches, the plots that you're going to hunt in the fall. For the guys that have smaller plots, is that something that where they'd want to stay away from peas of any type, or is there something they can do to help those plants go ahead and get up and get branched off and get through that, that early stage? You know, there's a couple of options. You see guys using the liquid fence or the milorganite or, you know, whatever little deer deterrents they, they have some success with. That is an option to fence off some of those smaller plots and let them get their feet set. You know, if you can keep the deer out of them a little while, a lot of times once you get a root under them and you get some size to them, they do rebound better after heavy grazing on your cowpea type varieties. The other option would be to look at varieties that can handle that grazing pressure much better. You know, we do one little blend, it's called our summer spot mix. And it is a blend of ashinomene elise clover, which is actually a summer legume, it's not a clover. And we use buckwheat with it. The elise clover and the ashinomene, those two, it can handle really heavy grazing pressure. And we typically plant those on those bowfield type sites on those sites where we know that we're probably going to get beat with a summer legume, a leafy, a big leafy summer legume. So we use that summer spot mix. And the beauty of it is that blend is going to be productive until the first frost. You know, those are our bow hunting spots. We'll plant those on some of those small bow fields and come October 15th, they're always a, a really, really good draw. You've got my, my wheels turning now because you just basically told me that I don't have to go plant on Labor Day anymore which means I get to spend more time fishing. Because typically, <laughs> typically when we're planting real early like that, it's because we're trying to have some fields ready for start of bow season. So yeah. what you're saying is with this, this summer spot, this buckwheat mixed with the clover, which is not a clover, clover that's not mm -hmm. a clover, that you can actually plant that and then leave it be and hunt it. Would you want to go ahead and just turn that in whenever you feel ready? I mean, obviously the first frost you say is going to kill it back. You just kind of turn it in and say, late October, I guess, and go ahead and plant your fall plots then? That's right. You know, a lot of times, if you hit the weather right, you can have some success doing what we call a throw and mow. And we've, we've been doing some, some little research plots to where we're using different techniques, um, mm -hmm. try some different no-till strategies. And uh, I know we had a lot of success last year. We took one of the summer spot plots and one of our pea patch plots. And probably around October the 1st, we came into those plots. It might have been a little later than that. I know the pea patch plot was around the 15th of October. But we just went through and we sprayed glyphosate on those plots the week before we seeded them. 
So say if it was planted the 15th, we sprayed those plots probably on the 10th, maybe five or six days earlier. Mm-hmm. And we just broadcast the seed about five days later through the plot with, with the stubble standing. And so as that stubble, what was left was dying. It kind of serves as um, a mulch when it falls on top of the, of the fresh seed. Now, we use glyphosate on one plot, and the other plot we just broadcast into the standing. Um, it was summer spot. We just broadcast into the summer spot. And then we came through and just mowed it off. We mowed the residual left that was left. And so, you know, you've got your clippings laying on top of, of what you just seeded. And if you can catch the rain right, they do really well, um, especially on smaller plots. You want to bump your seed rate up a little bit. but Did you find that one worked better than the other, say the glyphosate versus the throw and mow? Well, I know that they both did well, but I, I did forget to mention this. On both plots, we did come back and cultivate. Okay. The ground was not prepared. Uh, but the deer had been using those plots heavily, so there was a lot of exposed dirt underneath. And that's that's the reason we spread the glyphosate on the peas is just um, there was a little bit of grass competition coming in. We wanted to clean it up. But by cultipacking, it gives you better seed-to-soil contact. You know, those seeds, are they're laying under that mulch. But when you cultipack it, it does press them in a little more, and you, you, you just typically get more seed-to-soil contact and get better germination. Is there a certain size field you need for certain blends or certain products like soybeans and things like that. If you want yeah. to pursue yeah. that, what's the minimum acreage or size or width, whatever the case may be that you need to really know that you'll have some kind of a stand once the deer find it. Yeah, sure. And you know, each property is going to be different depending on, you know, your herd density, but a good rule of thumb is, is we don't plant any field that's less than an acre as a rule of thumb. Um, most fields, we want them larger than an acre if we're going to plant something like our pea patch mix um, with the mixed soybeans and cowpeas and lab lab and sunflowers and buckwheat. Typically, if they're larger than an acre, we feel like we can beat them. Um, sometimes if it's on a farm that has just a lot of deer, we may need to go a little larger, maybe two acres and bigger. Soybeans can be a different animal altogether. You know, sometimes those fields need to be three, four, five acres or bigger to beat the deer pressure. Anything smaller than that, we typically look towards ashenomene, at least clover, those those type seed species. Daniel, one of the things I like about you guys is y'all do a lot of testing. And what I want to know is how do, how do you determine which seeds blend together well? Uh, is it all just through testing or, I mean, is there, are there some complementary aspects of certain seeds to other, certain plants to other plants? Oh yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. If we're trying to produce just a, um, a feeding type plot where we're trying to produce as much leafy green tonnage as we can, we'll look at cowpea varieties or say lab lab or, you know, whatever those big running trailing type, um, big forage legumes are. And we'll want to try to pair it up with some sort of a structure. And that structure crop could be anything from, you know, we like to use sunflowers because they're, we don't have a problem using any of our pre-emerge chemicals or, or post-emerge grass killers with those. You know, but if we can find a good structure crop to go with it, we get those running trailing type legumes to crawl and run vertically. And that way we're producing a lot of tonnage. 360 around the stem. If we didn't put structure with it, those running, climbing, you know, vining type peas and beans would be running on the ground. You don't get as many groceries in the field because you're only growing leaf off one side of the plant. 
we definitely see more tonnage when we can get those plants growing upright. So we, you know, of course we play with different varieties to see which ones are producing the most tonnage and which ones the deer respond to the best. There's no doubt about that. What about treatment of the seeds? Uh, I see a lot about Mm -hmm. inoculants and things like that. Do y'all do anything special with your, with your blends and with your seeds to ensure the best germination or, you know, is there something that the guys planting your stuff can do to, to ensure they're getting the best germination? Yeah. You know, the one thing that we, we make sure that we do with all of our products is we use Delta Ag seed coat with all of it. And what it is, it's a souped up micronutrient package is pretty much what that product is. Um, it's got your micronutrients in it. It's kind of in a tout form, but it uh, is at a neutral pH. So whenever those seeds sprout, they're encased in that powder. And so that radical on that seed is going to grab that micronutrient package. And even if your pH is a little low for the first couple of weeks, you know, they're grabbing that talc powder that's actually at a, at a neutral pH. So it really helps with if there's a pH issue to get those seeds up, get them growing, to get them, you know, uh, to have a very good vigorous stand for the first three or four weeks. But as far as um, inoculant, most everything that we can get or inoculate, we go ahead and inoculate. Some species are just, it's impossible for us to pre-inoculate because the inoculation will expire, you know, within just a few days. But yes, it, inoculating your, your summer legumes is very important, in my opinion. And we inoculate everything we can. Some things we can't. And uh, we'll be glad to um, provide the inoculant. We have it. We just can't pre-inoculate some of it. Right. You mentioned that, and you know, I'm sure what we talked about today is. I know it's got my wheels turning. I've already got some ideas. I I don't know what Clint's thinking. Sometimes I just wonder if he's thinking at all. But I uh, <laughs> I know folks are going to hear hear what you've had to say today, and and have some more questions. We see it a lot in the real estate business. Every piece of land's different. Everybody's got yeah. a unique situation, and I'm sure they'd want to talk to you and maybe talk to some of the folks that are carrying your products and kind of figure out what's their best situation for them. So do y'all sell direct to consumer? I know, I know you have your seeds in a number of different retailers. If folks want to get in touch with you or ask you some questions or, or get a hold of your seed, what's the best way for them to do it? Yeah, sure. They can give us a call at the office in Utah and uh, we do have a 1-800 number and it's 877 um, they're more than welcome to catch us. Uh, then go to our website. It's productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And the, there's a contact link there. They can get a hold of us that way. You know, uh, Dale and I, we spend a lot of time talking to talking to guys on the phone every day. So we, we welcome the calls and the questions and, you know, we'll help you any way we can. As far as um, dealers, there's also a dealer locator on our website. And of course, you can call and we can find a dealer for you. We do have a retail storefront in Utah. Um, you know, if you're through town, uh, we've got some local guys there that shop with us. Um, so there's there's quite a few outlets to um, to get a hold of us or to find product. Do you guys help landowners at all with their CSP programs, the conservation stewardship programs? Uh, yes, we sure do. We get uh, several calls a year on guys that need a uh, specific mix to, um, you know, whether it be a pollinator mix or, or whatever they need to um, meet the requirements on their programs. We welcome those calls. We can help you out and make sure you get what you need to satisfy those programs. Well, Daniel, I always learn a lot every time I talk to you. And I say I learn a lot. I get a little bit more confused, too. You know, I got, then I start thinking, hey, man, I'm doing this wrong. But I always enjoy it no matter what. So I appreciate you being on the show and, and talking to us. I, 
I hope folks will plant a little bit more spring food plots along with those fall food plots and keep those deer and turkeys healthy year round. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Have a good, uh, have a good spring, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. Clint, I just listed a property just north of Pensacola, you know, roughly 600 acre quail property. It's got a good quail population and good deer hunting. Uh, It's got a real nice equestrian facility on it. But one of the things that's neat about that property is it's got some established longleaf pine stands. Longleaf pine is uh, one of those species that's available for a lot of cost share dollars. You're talking about those CSPs. Tell me a little bit more about that. I I haven't dealt with the CSPs as much as you have. And how can guys utilize that uh, when they're planting for wildlife? Yeah, a lot of people aren't familiar with them, uh, but they're becoming more and more of a familiar term. But it's not just for wildlife. I mean, it can be used on, you know, working lands for farms and things like that, where everybody's trying to, you know, increase yields, uh, decrease inputs, you know, cattle farms increase their gains there. But where I see it used most often is for wildlife management, uh, you know, just trying to improve that carrying capacity. Uh, In our area, it's usually programs where they'll pay you to plant perennials. So you get an annual payment, like a lot of people are familiar with CRP. It, in the fact that it's paid annually, it's it's similar to that, but it's not a CRP program either. But I sold a track in Marengo County, about 600 acres that had the most beautiful, really large fields of clover and other mixtures in there with it. And I just never seen anything like that in deer season. Usually you see primarily wheat and oats and rye, things like that. And I, so it, it forced the question. And he said, oh yeah, those are the CSP fields. And, you know, he was getting paid depending on the year and what all he did between twelve and $17,000 a year for this. So when you couple that kind of program with the, the things we just learned about, I mean, it can turn your property into, you know, just this superstar of habitat and, and feed sources for all kinds of game. Yeah. And deflect some of the, uh, some of the cost of it. Which yeah. Is, that's not know, a bad thing either. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Well, uh, man, it sounds like if folks want to get in touch with somebody to talk about seed for their property, they need to talk to Daniel. But if folks want to get in touch with somebody to talk about CSPs, they probably ought to give you a holler. I'll do my Reach best. out to you. Yeah, if y'all got any questions about CSPs or uh, just questions about planting for wildlife, planting spring food plots in general, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. Guys, we appreciate you listening. We will be right back here next week. Y'all stay safe out there. Good luck with your turkey seasons, and we'll talk to you soon.